in small to medium-sized markets. Presented by Cool Radio Streaming. Now here's your host, Tom Dobrez. Welcome to Cool Radio Stories, a podcast for small and medium-sized radio stations. Our inaugural guest today has been involved with scores of small, medium-sized market radio stations for multiple decades. And honestly, I couldn't think of anyone more suited to launch our podcast with and the Dean of Small Market Radio himself. Dean Sorensen, a pleasure to have you and thanks so much for sharing your cool radio story with us today. Well, I'm honored to be asked, Tom. Thank you. Now, Dean, of course, there's a cloud hanging over this production. At this time, uh, the world remains in quarantine over the threat of the coronavirus COVID-19. And we would like to hear your thoughts about that, some necessary survival tactics for radio stations. But uh, I'd like to table that and just kind of keep it toward the end of our show. I'd also like to inform the listeners that we also hear from attorney John Garziglia during our Ask John segment, when we'll ask John about some pressing legal matters in the radio world. We'll also dig into digital, a look at digital media trends with John Wenzug of Radio Max. But first things first, Dean Sorensen, let's start at the beginning. Uh, now, you don't have to necessarily give us the year, but what was your radio job number one? That was uh, in Mitchell, South Dakota in 1957. And the story is uh, one I've told a number of times because it's so, uh, it was unbelievable to me that I ended up in this career. I'm in Mitchell, South Dakota, going to high school. And in our senior year, in the spring of the year, when it was time for final exams, the rule was if you were a graduating senior and you were in the top 98% of the class, you didn't have to take final exams. They just said, well, have graduation. I'm sure I was pretty close to the break point, but uh, I, uh, I had four or five good buddies who I'd uh, been friends with through high school. And we were all going different directions when... Uh, we graduated. One was going to the Navy somewhere. One was going to move a job in Utah. I was going to go to, uh, in the fall, to the local college there in Mitchell, South Dakota. And so as a kind of a wrap up of our uh, youth together, uh, each day of that week when there were final exams, the four or five of six of us would go out and play nine holes of golf, at the local municipal golf course. Well, one day we played earlier than usual and it was basically about lunchtime when we got done and somebody in the group said, let's play nine holes or more. We, we've got nine, time for nine more. And off the top of my head, I said, I can't do that, fellas. I've got to go to town and get a job. And they all turned to me and said, where are you going to get, where are you going to apply? And I had to give them an answer. And so I just off the top of my head said the radio station. And uh, I went to town and picked up the phone. I knew the owner, uh, manager, Mr. Ray Apple. I called down to the local radio station about noon and asked if I could have an appointment to uh, see Mr. Apple about a job. And uh, the nice lady on the phone, Maxine, said, Mr. Apple's out for lunch right now, but he'll be back shortly after one o'clock. And so I uh, had a great comeback. I said, well, that's great. I've got to take a shower anyhow. 
And at one o'clock or thereabouts, I went to the radio station and told Mr. Apple that I was interested in working, if he had a job available, and I was going to be in college that fall and uh, be around town. Well, he said, come back and see me a little more seriously in a couple of days. And at that time, he informed me he had a, a, a transmitter uh, engineer uh, evening announcer job at his transmitter site available. And I could do that while I was going to college, probably. So we talked about that a couple of times that week. And my graduation was, I believe, on a Friday night. And the next day, I started working as the uh, four to midnight engineer announcer at K-O-R-N-A-M. 250 watts day, 250 watts night, non-directional in Mitchell, South Dakota. And uh, that was in 57. And uh, I've never had a real job since. <laughs> That's right. So you did have to give up that nine holes of golf, though. I did. I did. And I had to give up. I had later I learned I had to give up all my social activities of college because I was always working at night. But as I've tried to tell my children and grandchildren since then, I really was making double pay all the time because I was on the payroll at the radio station. And I um, also was not out spending money with uh, chasing movies and ladies. And uh, so I tell everybody I got double pay. So that thus began a a long history of involvement with radio and uh, it ended up leading to uh, probably every job, including taking the trash out, uh, but eventually became owner, multiple stations uh, for years. And during out that course, a multi-decade career, Dean, what were some of your personal highlights from a business radio station perspective? Well, I think that uh, the idea of... um Getting to be in ownership uh, was a, very much of a highlight. I, I was so maybe three, four years into my career when I was working for a, a small company in the Black Hills of South Dakota, the western part of the state. And uh, uh, there were three or four fellows that owned that together, and they offered me a chance to uh, have a piece of ownership. And, and I was really proud of uh, what radio did. And the idea of uh, owning a piece of a small radio station was important to me. And I got the, I got the bite. And, uh, and and got uh, interested in that. And so later we built uh, our, our long-running uh, company called Sorensen Broadcasting. It's a pretty unique name. But um, anyway, and a highlight always has been the fact that we could be in a community and serve the community, give them some entertainment, obviously, but also hopefully make a difference in, in the culture of that community with um, – not only our advertising, but our charitable service, our programming. And uh, along with that, we provided some good jobs. And I just worked with some marvelous people over the years that uh, made a difference in radio and made a difference in uh, our community. So the involvement of the people was uh, the best part of the whole thing. Well, obviously, Dean, you were rooted in the upper Midwest, the Dakotas, and that's where the bulk of your stations, as I understand, through the years have been in North South Dakota, I believe some Minnesota as well. That's, that's right, Tom. We were, we were, we operated uh, in South Dakota. Uh, mostly we had North Dakota operation for a period of time. We were in Minnesota in a couple of markets over the years. Also uh, had a nice operation in Iowa for uh, a number of years. And then uh, since quote unquote, my retirement, which was in 2000, I continued, and since then I've been involved in some Nebraska stations and some more Iowa stations, and uh, it's been a fun run. 
but it's been mostly in the upper Midwest and it's my home country. I think we understand the people and uh, radio is really important in this part. of the That's what I thought. And, and in those years, you, of course, had shared with us a moment ago about how the people that you met were you know, one of the highlights. How about the downtimes? I'm sure if you've been in this business or any business for five decades, you come across some challenges, uh, or as I like to call them, learning opportunities. You want to share one or two of those with us? I think one of the uh, biggest learning situations was, uh, as I refer to after my retirement, fellow that was doing what I had done and was learning roles of small, I call it small market group operators, approached me and had a uh, idea to buy a couple of stations in a market. And um, he he would like to be partners with me. We'd, we'd uh, become partners together. I told him when up front, I said, there's two things about this I am uncomfortable with. Number one, we were going to buy competing stations an FM and an AM, both were at the bottom of the heap in the market. It was a bigger market than I'd usually operated in. And uh, I'd later learned he didn't have much of a game plan and didn't, uh, you know, have a culture, didn't have much structure. He was going to run the company. I was going to be an interested uh, observer and uh, partner. And so the thing stumbled along for a couple of years. And finally, I asked him one day to... um, visit with me about the future. And I told him, I said, I got involved in this to have a little fun, maybe make a little money and uh, have a friendship with you. And I said, uh, we're not having much fun and I'm enjoying the friendship with you, but instead of making money, I'm getting quarterly cash calls. And that's not my idea of a good deal. Uh, why don't I just pay you a certain amount and you take over my stock? And uh, he pondered the deal for a couple of days and came back and said, I'm going to pay you and you take over my stock. And so in just a snap of a finger, I ended up being the uh, sole owner of a couple of radio stations that weren't doing very well. And and the, the point of my story is that I called up a man who had not worked with us before, but he had connections to that community. He was in the radio business and I convinced him that'd be a great challenge for him and a good opportunity for him and our company. And he moved in with what I considered our structure and our culture. And in, uh, I'm saying three, four years, he was showing up at the um, National Association of Broadcasters Convention of Las Vegas to get a Crystal Award and the Fall Convention to get a Marconi Award. He had a profitable operation. And that just one of those things that I said, you know, I'm not so smart and our people aren't smart. Our rule always was none of us are smart as all of us. And we got all of us together and we came up with some ideas and solutions and and turn that into a real nice radio market. Well, Dean, that's a classic story that you read about in all the business help books is to not look at it as a challenge, but rather as an opportunity. You clearly made the most of that particular situation. And uh, you mentioned one of the keys to that was the word community and how uh, the station was able to connect to the community. And I know that through the years, the tactics of how a radio station connects to their community, local communities change and vary. Also, even sometimes by market based on the conditions. But my question for you is, in this key factor, radio stations connecting to their communities, what is some of the underlying principles behind that of keeping the radio station in the community trust? Tom, I'm one of those old broadcasters that remember back in the days when we really thought about the radio station serving the 
community interest, necessity, and convenience. Uh, that was the, the, the Radio Act when it was rewritten back in the, was it the Hoover days. It was based on the idea that radio stations were to be a service of the community or to the community. And I still have some good radio friends who, who claim that, you know, they don't own the radio station. The community owns the radio station. And they just have the privilege of being the licensee to serve that community with a, a radio service. And boy, if you come to work every day with that attitude, uh, you're going to somehow make a difference in the community. And most of our places and uh, our operations had that same attitude. And, and we we held people responsible. We talked to our employees. If you were the, the top person at the market or you were the newest hire at the market, we expected you to somehow be involved in some community service on your own. I don't care if that was in your church auxiliary or your JC chapter or the chamber, whatever it was, you as a person should be involved because while you're being involved in the chamber or the Kiwanis Club, you're going to hear of things that are important to that community. You're going to bring them back to the radio station. They'll turn into news stories. They'll turn into public affairs programming. They'll turn into sales opportunities. And all of a sudden, you're an important part of what that community is trying to accomplish. And I've, I told our managers uh, always, I said, you know, I will know that you are really affecting this community. When you tell me that, for instance, one day you were sitting in your office and the school board uh, president came to the office and said, uh, can I just close the door and talk to you privately? And then the school board president went on to tell you, the station manager, I don't expect you to do anything about this, but I just want you to know that we're about to, you know, flood a bond issue, build a new high school, whatever it is. They want you as the radio station to be aware of what they're trying to accomplish. And, you know, that's pretty simple stuff, but it's really important. And when it happens, life gets a lot easier being a local broadcaster. Nowhere is the concept of pay it forward more real than in a local community and its radio station. As I like to say, give the community, the radio station it deserves. You mentioned employees' involvement in community organizations. Uh, any other key elements to connecting to a community? Tom, the other uh, uh, foundation of our uh, local small market radio stations was that we always had an active news department. And in my, you know, in small market news is a, a lot of things, but my r rule was... We have somebody on the staff who gets up every day and comes to the radio station and devotes all or most all of their day to news. It's it's an important function and, and we need to give it uh, some important attention. And I always said we need to have a three-pronged attack. Number one, we certainly will need to write and, and develop an important newscast. We need to deliver a professional newscast. But a third leg of the stool is when news is being made by what I call the power structure of the community, we need to be present. And I just simply said that when the city commission meets and the county commission meets, we need to be in the front row or in the press box covering the story. Not that we you know, we'll cover all, because some of that's pretty mundane, but the power brokers in town, the commissioners, the elected officials need to know that when they make decisions, the radio station is going to be there helping spread the word. And uh, the news department is just, was just always my foundation. I, 
early in my career, after I started that nighttime uh, transmitter announcer job at the radio station, I moved up to the, the news table, the news desk, and I really uh, enjoyed that and, and thought we made a difference. And so that stuck with me throughout my career. Dean, do you think that that is still pertinent? You know, today a consumer has a myriad of options to get and gather his or her news and information programming. On top of that, it's not a easy expense to justify, particularly in a small market, that of a news or a news division. Do you still think in today's day and age it has its place? If I were running a radio station today, I would uh, I would make sure we, we fill that role. Um, one of the radio stations where I'm... Uh, involved in it as a partner and chief cheerleader. We're a standalone in the market. Our competitors have eight, six, eight stations. Um, we're a standalone FM and we have, from the day we went on the air about 10 years ago, have always had uh, the best electronic journalist in the town. He might be the best journalist in the town. He's now in the retirement stage, but he's been replaced. We are not going to back off. And that station is thought of as the news source of the town. I think we're ready to take over the newspaper in that department. It's, it's, it, it's an important function. It's hard to justify. And if you've got a, uh, a company that's driven on the metrics of the bottom line only, that's going to get chopped somewhere along the way. And Tom, let's face it, with a decreasing emphasis on news and the radio stations, the talent pool is just awful out there. It's hard to find somebody who will be a one-person newsroom. That's a lot of work, a lot of early mornings, a lot of late nights, and it's a lonesome, lonesome place. But it's kind of exciting for somebody. We got to find that somebody in each market. Only one person needs to do it. Well, Dean, you raise one of the more challenging questions and issues regarding today's radio managers, and that is hiring of the right people. And I'd like to dig into that, but right now it's time for us to take a break and dig into the mailbag as we ask John Garziglia a question regarding broadcast law on Cool Radio Stories. It's time to ask John, a regular feature where we ask John Garziglia, a partner with the FCC law firm Womble, Carlisle, Sandridge and Rice, about legal matters facing the broadcast radio industry. Checking the email letter bag today on our Ask John segment is the question about the state of music licensing. John? Well, about a year ago, I was asked by uh, Radio Inc. magazine uh, for an article I was writing, what were the top 10 issues facing our radio industry? I wrote that music licensing was the number one issue, and I think that remains true today. I believe that either governmental forces or outside forces changing our current radio music licensing uh, scheme has more potential to dramatically upset the business of radio as we know it than perhaps any other issue out there. Radio is currently protected by the DOJ consent decrees, and the restrictions apply in varying measures to ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, who uh, license songwriters and, and keep the songwriter fees at uh, what are pretty much forecastable levels for radio stations. In other words, radio stations know what the fees will be this year and probably next year and then the years to follow. But the DOJ's decision several years ago that uh, the music licensing companies under the consent decrees can engage in what's called fractional licensing, where separate songwriters for a particular song, for one song, can each 
sign up with a different uh, performing rights organization. One songwriter can sign up with ASCAP, another with BMI, another with CSAC. And then to play the song, the radio station has to sign up with all three performing rights agencies to have the right to play the song. It's sort of throwing a monkey wrench into this whole scheme. So therefore, looking forward, we could have any number of music rights entities out there asking for fees from radio stations, as broadcasters well know. We have the recent entry of Global Music Rights, GMR, and then there is this California lawsuit against the Radio Music Licensing Committee alleging antitrust as a countersuit to the legal action that RMLC brought against GMR, which has now been consolidated into one proceeding. So GMR, as a new player here, uh, is seeking fees from radio stations across the board for playing music. Now, where this lawsuit will end up and what the fees will ultimately be is anybody's guess. But uh, if history is any guide, GMI should be restrained in the same way that ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC were previously restrained. But there's really no telling. Even more confusingly, in the last several months, there's a new entrant, Pro Music Rights LLC, or simply PRO, based out of Florida, and it's owned by a single individual. Pro Music Rights LLC recently filed multiple lawsuits against music streamers, broadcasters, the RMLC, and other users of music, uh, alleging that all the users are in this cartel to keep anyone from signing up with this uh, new licensing agency. I should mention that all the stuff I just mentioned concerns only songwriter licensing for songs. By, ra by statute, radio broadcasters are exempt for paying for licensing rights to play recorded music on the air, but not in streaming, which is paid through SoundExchange. Uh, to date, radio broadcasters and the NAB and state broadcasters have been very effectively, uh, very effective at lobbying to keep the uh, copyright statute that exempts radio broadcasters from paying licensees, uh, licensing fees for recorded music from being changed. But the uh, sad fact is, with a five-word amendment to any law that Congress is considering, Congress could change that uh, statute if the political winds uh, were to shift or if the broadcasting industry relaxes its uh, lobbying efforts. Such a change, if uh, where it was instituted, would have tremendous cost to radio stations. I think radio stations would be looking at something like 3% to 7% of revenue to be paid for any radio station playing music on the air. We're back now with the second half of our interview with the Dean of Small Market, Dean Sorensen who is a legend in the radio industry, and we're just chatting about hiring practices uh, before the Ask John break. And so now I'd like to uh, bring uh, Dean back into the room, our e-room here, and ask him a little bit about his hiring practices. Dean, you clearly have hired a few in your lifetime. I'm sure every single one was a perfect hire. Uh, my question really is, how and what are some of the things you've done and, and learned when during the hiring process? Well, when you talk about perfect hires, I my standard line is, is when we're hiring a new employee for our uh, business, um, the person being hired and the you know, hirer or the employer are both human beings. And there's a lot of room for uh, risk and failure there. So let's not be too hard on ourselves. I don't care if it's uh, the news person or uh, when I needed a manager for a radio station or a, um, a salesperson station, if we're not hiring somebody, I hope that that, uh, that role is not being filled as well as if we had somebody. So let's get, get off the, 
get off the dime and let's get somebody going and uh, get rolling on it. Um, I was in the hiring mode at all times. And I always encouraged our managers to be in the hiring mode. If they weren't in the hiring mode, they should be in the training mode. And uh, that meant uh, they should be out making calls with salespeople or they should be helping the news person uh, uh, become a better journalist or finding somebody who can help them do that if the manager didn't feel qualified. But um, I mean, we were, we were, we didn't, I can remember with my, when I say we, I'm talking about my staff and myself out having coffee at a local cafe. We were always looking around the room who's somebody in this room that uh, would fit our family of radio folks down at the station. Uh, I didn't care if it was the, the waitress that was taking care of us or the waiter or, or somebody in the next door booth. Uh, I always thought we had some things to offer as a, as a, as a place to work and uh, we should see who wanted to be part of that organization. And uh, so we were in the hiring mode at all times. Uh, unfortunately, I know that many of us as business people start the hiring process about the time uh, the resignation walks out the door. So the staff member comes in and says, I'm going to leave in a couple of weeks. And we say, oops, I better start looking for somebody. Well, the looking for it should have started long before that. Uh, when I was uh, running our group of stations, I would continually uh, suggest to the manager to tell me about some of the applications they had on file they'd already interviewed. Uh, many times we had managers meetings uh, one of the uh, tickets to admission was bring in three applications that you've already interviewed and tested so that uh, your next next opening is uh, already underway. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to look at that facet all the time. If I had to start a company over again today in the radio business, running a group of stations like we did, and I was the CEO, the one thing I would uh, do a better job of in hiring managers was explain how much of their time was going to be spent hiring, mentoring, motivating, training, and inspiring salespeople. It's a big part of the job. All right, Dean, you got them assembled in a room. You've built your team. Now, how do you keep them working together? What are some of the strategies? You know, the uh, age-old adage in radio is it's always traffic versus the sales department, promotions, etc. So how do you keep them all as a cohesive team? Good question, Tom. Uh, you know, if any of us had the perfect answer, we'd be uh, doing something else probably. Uh, but I think it goes back to what I refer to as culture. I think you start out with making sure that the, the organization has a culture and that uh, people understand the culture and they sign on to that culture. Um, we, we had, you know, we had vision statements. We had uh, mission statements. We had uh, to-do lists, and they were always posted and shared with everybody. Um, they, they, you, you mentioned the, uh, the sales versus uh, talent or the sales versus traffic uh, issue that we have all the time. Uh, you Again, we got to, What's our, what's our purpose? Well, our purpose is to be the best information and entertainment source in our community. And it's also to be the best advertising media in our community. In some way, we word that. You know, fighting with the traffic lady over where your favorite commercial is placed is not what's going to resolve what our goal is in entertaining and making our, our advertisers successful. So we need to get everybody on the same page. And then there has to be a lot of respect. You know, I always told salespeople, I said, you know, it wouldn't hurt you 
once a month when you come back to the office at four o'clock in the afternoon to stop by the Dairy Queen and pick up a strawberry sundae and take it back to the traffic person. Uh, he or she would certainly appreciate the small gesture that you understand what they're doing to make your customers sound good on the radio station. I mean, it's just mutual respect like we do try to teach our children in the family or in our, our church or school group. And uh, we all have a role. And it's, it's, as I said earlier, none of us are smart as all of us. Together, we can be much more powerful. You know, Dean, you hit on a point that I think a lot of young new managers tend to miss. And that is the realization that not everybody has had the similar education leading into their positions and their job functions. And some have come, even those that have come from the greatest colleges, there's not a lot of business, uh, what my dad used to call street smarts or common sense built into the system. And therefore, it becomes a part of a manager to be an educator as well, to train and to teach. And you might have that star salesperson that just goes out, hits it every day, brings home the business. But then when he gets back into the office, he's a bit of a mess and a bull in a china shop. And he's really creating havoc that's really, truly unnecessary inside the building. I remember we had a lady, most of our traffic people were ladies, as I remember in those days, but we had one who had a, a rubber chicken at her desk. And if a salesperson came by with a audaciously stupid request, she, she'd just hit him with a rubber chicken. <laughs> and that was, come on, Joe, you know better. Yeah, we had a, we had kind of a company rule that if any, uh, a salesperson turned in an order. You know, salespeople do have a tendency once in a great while to turn in an order at about 4.30 on Friday afternoon for a schedule that's going to run over the weekend or start on Monday morning. In many cases, that order had laid on their desk since last Monday, and they just didn't get around to taking it out to the traffic desk. So we had a rule in our company that, I don't know, it was after lunch on Friday or whatever, any orders turned in, or especially at closing time, 5 o'clock, if you turn in an order and you want it on the log for the weekend or the holiday Monday or the week following, it would be done. But you were going to sit down by the traffic person until they got it done and stay with it. So, of course, that took care of that problem. No salesperson is going to stick around after five o'clock. Give me a break. Well, Dean, you asked for it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to give you a break as well as our listeners. We're going to hear from one of our radio partners. But when we return to the conversation, I'd like to ask you about the current cloud hanging over radio stations and the economy. And that would be the coronavirus COVID-19 and how you view it from a radio station uh, perspective. We'll be right back on Cool Radio Stories. Your ears are dialed into Cool Radio Stories, a podcast presented by Cool Radio Streaming. Now a word from a radio partner. Hi, this is Scott Murray, president and founder of Big Deals Media. Our mission is to help media companies create powerful new business advertising programs paid for in part with trade or gift certificates. You might be familiar with Groupon or other deals programs. And while we all deal with gift certificates as the currency, I can tell you with 100% certainty that Big Deals is a well-thought-out, appealing marketing program for your advertisers and a much more lucrative revenue solution for your company. You see, 
While many deals programs are a revenue share, where your company is splitting the sale of the certificates as much as 50%, with big deals, you keep 93% of your sales. And to ensure your success, we actually come into your market to work directly with your sellers, so your sales team sees firsthand the best way to present this solution. Big Deals is changing the way Main Street is buying local media. Today, we have over 3,000 businesses participating in a Big Deals program, and that number is growing every day. How much revenue can you drive from a Big Deals program? We have affiliates generating in excess of $200,000 annually and have been doing so with us since we launched Big Deals during the last economic downturn 10 years ago. Think about it. How good would it look on your P&L right now if your website and digital marketing efforts were driving that kind of revenue? For small businesses, barter is always a popular way of doing business. However, in an economic downturn, barter is king, and monetizing the barter is key for your company. To learn more, go to our website, bigdealsmedia.com, or call us at 952-905-3262. Welcome back to Cool Radio Stories. I'm your host, Tom Dobrez. We're visiting with Dean Sorensen, simply known as the Dean of Small Market Radio. We'll resume our conversation with the legend in just a moment. First, I want to remind you that coming up in part of our podcast today is Digging Into Digital. A look at some of the digital marketing trends that may help you and your radio station continue to grow. Dean, you've been graciously sharing with us your insight and experiences in your five plus decades as a small market, medium sized market radio station owner, manager, and janitor. We appreciate that. Now, this podcast is being recorded under a dark cloud, otherwise known as COVID 19, a crisis unseen before. And what I'd like to ask you is what experiences can you draw on? and or how can others in our industry face this battle that has really been quite crippling to small businesses across uh, the United States and the world, quite frankly? Well, I think it's an opportunity, opportunity, obviously, uh, for uh, service to our community. I uh, hear some awful fine uh, community service being done by radio stations. I scan the dial. Uh, People are concerned. People are worried. They want to know more than just the hospital count and the death count, I believe. They want to know some of the background of what's going on and what the, the experts or the medical people are saying will be the end gate to this. It's 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 a challenge out there. And in many of our communities, with the decreased uh, print uh, uh, media influence, our radio stations have a bigger role than ever. And uh, we're limited to uh, as much as anybody else by how many people we have or how much resources we can throw at it. But like in our part of the world, Tom, I've always said a good blizzard is the best thing that can happen for our radio station because it forces people to listen to the radio. And um, this, this, this pandemic or whatever we're in, this health challenge is similar to that. The other side of the coin is the radio station has to perform. We have to have some information that's meaningful and helpful. And we might become what quote unquote, the Facebook of our community for a while. And I'm talking about some very personal communication back and forth, almost point to point, which is not what radio is designed for. On the other side of the coin, we talk about advertisers and our advertisers need our ideas. They need our help more than ever. And 
somebody asked me early on in this deal what we might face in terms of cancellations. And my observation was, and I think I've had a couple of broadcasters come back and tell me that they're seeing this to be true. I think there's two types of local advertising we can sell advertisers on our radio stations. One is what I call our stuff, our promotion. It's the spring fling. It's the dialing for dollars or whatever the promotion, safety messages, whatever the promotion may be. Or it's deep thought strategic planning where we sit down with a client and say, here's where you are and here's where you told us you want to be. Can we talk about some ideas to get you from the as is to the should be? And so then based on that, we've helped them design campaigns that uh, will increase their put traffic in the door, increase the refrigerator sales, increase their grain uh, intake, whatever was they're doing. And we're helping them raise their business uh, profitability. Now, the person who's buying our events, that's just something they're putting some dollars into to get their name out there. It's easy to cancel that. But the client who has sat down and had a long, in-depth study with us to learn how we can help them build their business probably is less likely to give up that uh, that impetus to move forward on that ladder up to the uh, should-be. If you're selling uh, more uh, jewelry this month than you did last month, and uh, you don't want to stop the advertising because next month you want some more. That's my take on the uh, pandemic. Indeed, an optimistic perspective on a crisis. And Dean, I expected that from you, and I do appreciate you sharing that with our audience. It is in times of crisis like this that uh, fissures in the uh, <coughs> fabric are exposed in society and in the business or you know, where you have some weak links and perhaps uh, it takes a crisis oftentimes to determine that and maybe Radio stations can look internally and say, yeah, this is where we failed. But more importantly, they can look ahead and use this as an opportunity to connect with their communities, whether it's to getting the Chamber of Commerce on, talking to local business owners, visiting with the health professionals in the area. That can only lead to positive uh, impact to your listenership today and perhaps some business for the station in the future uh, you know, as an owner of a streaming company, I think it has been very interesting to watch the streaming numbers actually increase rather dramatically during the crisis across the country. And that, of course, means that the listeners are still there. They're just using different you know, vehicles to listen to their radio station. They're not necessarily in their cars because they're staying at home, but they still are uh, logging on to their computers, doing their work, and then uh, listening to their radio stations through other means. Indeed, we do appreciate all the frank and honest conversation, sharing your experiences with us. And I'm sure our listeners that know you want to know uh, the answer to our final question. What are you doing these days, Dean? And uh, where can people find you? Um, yes, I'm, I'm uh, trying to be more retired all the time. And I think I'm, uh, I'm approaching uh, success in that department. Uh, I, I have involved in two radio companies. Uh, one is a, a former competitor of mine. He and I were competitors. We, I thought he was always a great radio guy. I always told our manager, don't you be talking bad about anything they do over there. And, uh, and I didn't have to tell him that he was, he was, he played that role of a good, good radio guy all along. We ended up doing some little side businesses uh, while we were in as competitors. We 
towers and things like that. And then when we both got out of the radio business, he uh, said, I'm too young. I shouldn't have got out. I'm, I'm anxious to do something else. So we put together a new company and he started a, a brand new radio station. And uh, it's been about uh, 10 years now. And I've been a chief cheerleader and a friend and partner in that deal. And then uh, uh, I ended up with a group of stations uh, through the, you know, I, I, I leased my stations. I didn't sell them. I leased them. And we went through the 2008 downturn in the economy during that time. And the people who leased uh, didn't want to uh, own them. And so I took them back and, and we started a new company. And one of my former associates uh, took that over and is building that as his company. And it's a great, uh, great little small market. A lot of towns of uh, six, 8,000, the only, uh, only immediate daily media in the towns. And we're just having great business in those towns. So that's what I'm doing. I'm also, you know, still trying to stay active in the uh, industry. Uh, I'm interested in what NAB and uh, the RAB, Radio Advertising Bureau, are, are doing. I'm also involved in the International Broadcasters Idea Bank as an emeritus member, but I'm still kind of talking to those folks. And uh, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to learn more about is uh, the digital world. And uh, I think when we uh, get out of this current health crisis we talked about, I think we'll find the digital world didn't get hurt very bad by it because people see that as a very important part of today's marketing. Our group of stations in... Uh, Northern South Dakota and Northwest Iowa are very active, have a, a department with, with its own leader that is developing and selling digital. Uh, they have partnered with a uh, advertising agency who is selling a white paper product to uh, radio stations, which means have this product. They'll put your, your station call letters on it, but the ad agency will do the back uh, shop stuff. That's the best I can describe it as a not very digitally uh, informed person, but our company is kind of the beta test market for that. And so uh, we're having some good success. We're helping some clients with uh, a better presence on the, on the web and uh, helping them uh, uh, develop leads and contacts and sales through that. Uh, and it's all of course, tied in with radio to drive people to those websites. Uh, we, we are proud that we're able to be at the planning table with the client. And at that planning table, we're talking both digital and broadcast. And we're finding out that our listeners are from all over heck listening in all types of devices. They're on phones and iPads and PCs and everywhere else, but they're still dialing in the local radio station. And uh, we're trying to give them something that's worthwhile to be there for. And in many cases, we're the only people talking about the local scene. And, you know, Tom, in these small towns, it's fire announcements, obituaries, lost dogs. And if we got time, we'll play a couple good tunes along the way, too. So true, Dean. And it actually uh, recalls a comment a radio programmer made to me once, a great radio programmer at that. I believe he was quoting Keith Moon, who said when asked about playing the drums that it's not about keeping the beat what you do in between the beats and his uh, he parlayed that to say that great radio is not about the music but what you do in between the songs that makes the difference Dean you've been making a difference in a number of uh, radio markets and in radio lives we do thank you uh, tremendously for being inaugural guest number one and also doing a nice lead-in <laughs> to the final part of our uh, broadcast today and that is the idea that we're going to be digging into digital in a moment, but uh, I would be remiss not to say thank you. 
We certainly appreciate your time, uh, not just in this podcast today, but in your 60 years as a grand radio broadcaster. You've taught all of us a great deal. Well, Tom, thank you for thank you for the initiative to uh, develop this service for our industry and our friends. And it's just an honor to have been uh, 60 some years on I've had in this radio business. And, and the best part, of course, is meeting the Tom Dobrezes and the people of the world uh, through different uh, organizations and radio efforts. And uh, it's it's still better than going to work for a job, I'll tell you. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. Best wishes. The folks who listen to this, if I can be of assistance in any way, I think you can usually find me with a Google search, and I'm not hard to find. I, I don't try to hide myself, and and uh, I want to be an encourager. If I know you, fine. If I don't know you, we'll get acquainted, and I'd like to encourage you. And uh, this is a great world. There's a lot of gold out there, and everybody deserves uh, to have a chance to earn some of it. Once again, the Dean of Small Market Radio, Dean Sorensen. If you're interested in hearing more or chatting with Dean, he is a wonderful man and he will definitely keep his door open for you. Reach out to him at inbetweenopportunities.com. We're not quite finished here at Cool Radio Stories, a special feature we like to throw in to help you navigate the new digital landscape out there is called Digging Into Digital. Let's check in with Radio Max CEO, John Wenzel. It's time to dig into digital, our segment on how you can use digital to unleash the power of your station. Here's our digital guide, John Wan Zung, CEO of Radio Max. Facebook, social media, how do we use it? Why do we use it? Do we need to use it? I think that's a question a lot of radio stations ask. One of the things is, you know, we're a company, you're, you as a radio station, you're a company. And one of the things that all the social companies did is they convinced us as companies to drive traffic to them. And good for them. They did a great job at it. The thing is, what every time that we are driving someone, let's say, to Facebook, guess who's making the money? Yeah, Facebook. So what we need to do when we're thinking about social media is how do we drive people back to us? How do we drive them back into our ecosystem? We absolutely have to use social media but what are the ways that we can kind of pull them back into us and drive all those amazing listeners and fans that we have through social media to engage with our product, with our station? So think about it this way. You probably heard of the 411 rule. When you're creating social media, you want to create four pieces of content that are basically delivered by someone else or created by someone else. You're offering great information to your listeners. Then you want to have one piece of content that you create, custom content. And then the third or the fifth or the, I'm sorry, the sixth piece is where you want to create that call to action. Something now where you're actually asking the listeners to do. And this is where you start to drive people back towards you. And this is a process that's not going to happen overnight. People are conditioned to be on social media. So now we need to slowly start conditioning them to point them back to you. One of the examples, I'm sure most of the stations have websites. Hopefully a lot of you have a mobile. What can you do on social to drive them back to your website where your advertisers are, where you've got exclusive content, where you want to engage with them on mobile? There's a lot of tools out there that you can use within your website on your mobile to engage with the listeners that you've probably been using social media for. 
So now we want to capitalize on that opportunity with our social fans and have them engage on your mobile, on your station, through call-ins, and use that medium to drive them back to you. Because next week, when we talk about digital and advertising, having those statistics on your platform is how you're going to be able to drive digital advertising dollars. That's John Wanzung, CEO of Radiomax. For more on using digital to unleash the power of your station, visit radiomax.co. Well, that wraps us up for show number one. It has been a thrill to put this together. I want to thank our guest today, Dean Sorensen. The Cool Radio Stories is a production of Cool Radio Streaming and me, your producer, Tom Dobrez. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to some Cool Radio Stories. You've been listening to Cool Radio Stories, a production of Cool Radio Streaming. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit CoolRadioStories.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.